millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, Mehdi Hassan here. Before we begin, I want to take a moment to invite you to become a member of Deconstructed and The Intercept, uh, because it's never been more important to support truly independent journalism. If you're listening to this show, then you probably already know that The Intercept is a news organisation that doesn't follow the crowd, isn't afraid to challenge orthodoxies. We don't worship at the altar of access journalism. We cover stories that other media outlets can't be bothered to cover themselves. Uh, But if we're going to keep producing this show and all the other great journalism you know and love in 2019 and beyond, we're going to need your support. Right now, you can head over to theintercept.com forward slash give and make a donation of $15, $50, $100 or more. Or you can become a sustaining member and sign up for a $5 or $10 monthly donation. Become a member at whatever amount feels right to you because membership is not only about money. It's about a proud and public declaration of support for the kind of fierce adversarial journalism we do every day. Press freedom is under attack in this country. To support the kind of independent journalism that The Intercept produces every day, head over to theintercept.com forward slash give right now. That's theintercept.com forward slash give. And now, on to the show. They're creating political hagiography, exploiting this death to make political points while at the same time demanding that nobody else make countervailing political points. And that's what I find so bothersome about it is it's a demand to engage in one-sided propaganda. Welcome to Deconstructed. I'm Mehdi Hassan. George H.W. Bush passed away last Friday at the age of 94. He was the 41st president of the United States, and tributes have poured in from people across the political spectrum who have dubbed him the anti-Trump, the last Republican moderate, a paragon of civility, of decency, of honour. History will be quite kind to him in his presidency. He was a good reminder that ultimately we're Americans first. He has a universal respect of the American people. Job well done, George H.W. Bush. On the show today is my good friend and Intercept colleague, Glenn Greenwald, who, like me, is pretty fed up with some of the appallingly one-sided US media coverage of Bush's death and the whitewashing of some of the darker aspects of his presidency. What really is being demanded is that we all submit to historical revisionism. And the fact that journalists, of all people, are leading the way in making that demand is deeply corrupt and offensive. And I just think that it's incumbent upon all of us to refuse to allow them to do that. So today, on this special episode of Deconstructed, George H.W. Bush, The Inconvenient Truth. When a president dies, something weird happens to the US media. And as a Brit watching cable news, I kind of feel like tearing my hair out. Herbert Walker Bush was the last of the greatest generation to serve as president. And he embodied the best of that generation. Decency, honor, integrity. He was a great man. I really got to know him as a friend. He had a great sense of humor, fun to be around. He had Christ-like character. He was humble. He was faithful. Christ-like character. 
Hmm. Look, the late George H.W. Bush, or Bush Sr., as many of us refer to him, did a lot of good things as President of the United States. He did. He helped end the Cold War without firing a shot. He stood up to the gun lobby. He stood up to the pro-Israel lobby. He brought in the Americans with Disabilities Act. He called Donald Trump a blowhard and even voted for Hillary Clinton in 2016. Unlike the current president who dodged serving in Vietnam because of bone spurs, Bush Sr. joined the Navy at the age of 18 so he could fight for his country in World War II. And fun fact, as my sixth grader told me last night, Bush hated broccoli and banned it from Air Force One. I guess he and I have at least one thing in common. But here's the thing. George Bush Sr. also did a lot of awful things, killed a lot of innocent people, and we can't just ignore that or pretend none of that happened. Now, I know what some of you are thinking, and some of you have said this to me on social media since I wrote a piece last Saturday for The Intercept pointing out how the 41st president engaged in race-baiting, obstruction of justice, and war crimes. This isn't the time, you said. Don't speak ill of the dead. Show some compassion. Show some respect for his family. Look, I have nothing but respect and compassion for his grieving family members, even his war criminal son. To lose your father is horrible. But Bush wasn't just a family man, wasn't just a private citizen. He was a public figure. He was, for a time, the most powerful man on earth. And it is the job of journalists to hold powerful people, to hold power to account, not to produce hagiography masquerading as journalism. You can't ask journalists, who are supposed to be producing the first draft of history, remember, to just pour praise on the positive legacy of a dead president and ignore the negative aspects of it. Of course, many journalists do exactly that, which is what we're going to be discussing today. But I, for one, cannot sit silently by as brazen lies are told on cable news or in newspaper op-eds and obituaries. Listen to Colin Powell, who served as chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff under Bush Sr., speaking on CNN on Saturday. A quote that he gave that you used a few moments ago, politics need not be mean and nasty. And he lived by that. And I wish we could get some, some of that back into our system now. George Bush Sr. said we shouldn't be nasty. I have two words for you. Willie Horton. The notorious Willie Horton ad, financed by supporters of President George H.W. Bush's 1988 campaign, which played directly into white fear and African-American stereotypes. Willie Horton was serving a life sentence for murder in Massachusetts, where Bush's 1988 Democratic presidential opponent, Michael Dukakis, remember him, was governor. And Horton had fled a weekend furlough program brought in by Dukakis and raped a Maryland woman. Horton fled, kidnapped a young couple, stabbing the man and repeatedly raping his girlfriend. That ad, released by a political action committee tied to Bush during the 1988 campaign, wanted us all to know that the Democrats were OK with a black guy raping white women. It was racism, pure and simple. Weekend prison passes, Dukakis on crime. As Bush campaign director Lee Atwater bragged, by the time we're finished, they're going to wonder whether Willie Horton is Dukakis's running mate. Atwater later apologised for the ad on his deathbed. George Bush Sr., though, never did. And yet never Trump Republican Max Boot in the Washington Post called Bush Sr., the anti-Trump. CNN's Chris Siliza said the elder Bush was, quote, the exact political opposite of Donald Trump. Look, I get it. Compared to the openly corrupt, know-nothing, neo-fascist demagogue in the White House right now, Bush Sr. looks pretty good. But that's a very low bar. And by the way, guess what? 
when it comes to special counsels and cover-ups and presidential pardons, Bush had a lot more in common with Trump than some in the media might have you believe. Prosecutor Lawrence Walsh says the presidential pardons of six former Reagan administration officials, including Casper Weinberger, won't end the Iran-Contra investigation. Walsh says Mr. Bush's own misconduct still is an issue. Sorry, you cannot get all worked up about Trump dangling a pardon in front of former campaign chair Paul Manafort or refusing to sit down for an interview with special counsel Robert Mueller and then give Bush Sr. a pass on Iran-Contra. Bush refused to speak with the special counsel at the time, refused to hand over his diary, and pardoned Reagan Defense Secretary Caspar Weinberger on the eve of his trial so that he, Bush, wouldn't have to testify. He participated, in the words of special counsel Lawrence Walsh, in a cover-up of Iran-Contra, or what you might call obstruction of justice. Then there's Iraq. Gulf War One. The good war, the clean war, the one Saddam Hussein started. Unlike his son's Iraq war. Bush Sr. was just responding, right? Less than a week ago, in the early morning hours of August 2nd, Iraqi armed forces, without provocation or warning, invaded a peaceful Kuwait. Without provocation or warning? I guess it's not just Bush Jr. who told lies about Iraq to justify US military action. The reality is that the week before Saddam Hussein's illegal and outrageous invasion of Kuwait in August 1990, Bush Sr.'s own ambassador to Iraq, April Glaspie, told Saddam, a long-standing US ally and client, lest we forget, that we, the United States, we have no opinion on your border disagreement with Kuwait. Talk about a green light for invasion. And then there's the US-led war itself. More than 88,000 tons of US bombs dropped, tens of thousands of Iraqis killed, including more than 400 Iraqi civilians massacred in an air raid shelter in Baghdad after a US airstrike, what Human Rights Watch called a serious violation of the laws of war. But these Iraqi deaths, they don't feature in any of the obits or tributes to Bush in the US media. The New York Times and the Washington Post obits this past weekend both devoted sections to the Gulf War, but neither mentioned the Iraqis killed by Bush or the massacre at the Amiria air raid shelter or the deliberate destruction of Iraqi civilian infrastructure, the power stations, the food processing plants, the flour mills. Neither of them mentioned the cholera and typhoid epidemics that then followed the end of that war or the sanctions that killed more than a million Iraqis. Bush's life matters, apparently deserves respect. But brown lives don't matter. Nor does the truth, it seems. My guest today is my good friend and Intercept colleague and co-founder of The Intercept, I should add, the Pulitzer Prize-winning Brazil-based author and commentator Glenn Greenwald, who has written extensively not just on US foreign policy disasters and the failures of the US media to cover them, but also on the way in which we cover the deaths of presidents and politicians more broadly. Glenn, Thanks for joining me on Deconstructed. Good to finally have you on the show. I know. I've been a little hurt that it's taken this long, but I'm happy to be here. Hey, uh, the sad passing of George Bush Sr. has brought us together. Before we get into George Bush Sr., George H.W. Bush and his legacy, um, Glenn, deal with the argument, which is a good faith argument from some people, that you and I shouldn't even be having this conversation. It's too soon. It's in bad taste. He just died. He hasn't even been buried yet. What is your response to that line of argument? A couple of points. One is it reminds me a lot of the people who, in the wake of mass shootings, complain when 
people, quote unquote, politicize the mass shootings by raising issues, for example, of the need for greater gun control, when obviously the epidemic of mass shootings is an inherently political event, Mm. impossible to talk about without political points, because there's political policy decisions that have led to these mass shootings. And so the people who want to suppress uh, the real implications of those uh, events try and censor the discourse by saying the only thing you're allowed to do is express sadness and thoughts and prayers to the victims, um, when in fact the entire event is intrinsically political. In the case of people, public figures, um, especially political leaders who die, it's even more of a deceit because not only is it an intrinsically political event, right? The only reason we're all talking about the death of George H.W. Bush was because he was a political yeah. leader. Um, it's not like he was friends he was with each of us friend. individually yeah. or our next door neighbor. Exactly. What really bothers me about it is that if the people who were insisting that there be no political criticisms of him were willing to uphold their end of that etiquette bargain by not making any political points of their own, I would still disagree with them, but at least I would have more respect for their position. So in other words, like... We can't say anything politically bad about George H.W. Bush until, I don't know, whatever their religious like period of time is that has yeah, they to never say when is the right hours. time to say it in two months time right, when everyone's very, moved on right exactly it's very arbitrary it's just i don't know what the time period is but they grant themselves license to make extremely yeah. political points exactly. you know they're building him into this political icon of nobility and positive political values and a patriot so they're creating political hagiography making political arguments, exploiting this death to make political points while at the same time demanding that nobody else make countervailing political points. And that's what I find so bothersome about it is it's a demand to engage in one-sided propaganda. And the hypocrisy, I think, is is spot on. What you say, it's so hard to get this point across, though, every time a public figure dies, because it's the same argument, just like after every mass shooting, it's the same argument from the right and the NRA. It is the same argument, whether it's John McCain, uh, whether it's George Bush Sr., whether it's Margaret Thatcher, and you wrote a very... uh, good piece about death etiquette back in 2013 for The Guardian, which I urge all the listeners to go read, where Glenn uh, uh, explains in length why we shouldn't be silent at times like this. But Glenn, well, that's what's so annoying. Even friends of mine, family members were saying to me, oh, why'd you write this piece on Saturday about Bush? You know, we love your stuff, but now's not the time. Show some respect for the family. And I'm like, well, if it was just about the family, then of course, of course I want to show respect for the family. But this is not about the family. If it was just, if CNN was saying, breaking news, George Bush Sr. has died. He was the 41st president. He leaves behind eight grandkids 17 great grandkids it's a very sad time for the family i probably wouldn't say anything and i wouldn't have written an article maybe but if you're going to go on air and say here's all his former assistants advisors cabinet secretaries and they're telling us that he was a great president and he only did good things then it is incumbent upon us as journalists on you and me and others to say um i think you're forgetting a few things and i think it's a key point is this whole discussion this taboo conflates public and private etiquette So if I were to go to George H.W. Bush's funeral or his wake and his children were there and his siblings and his relatives and his friends, I wouldn't go and start just out of the blue and vindictively rubbing in their faces criticisms because I would give them space to privately mourn. Those are private ceremonies. And I think that they have the right to, to mourn. But 
it's not strictly a private event. It's a very public and political event. The The death of most, most people are not discussed on CNN uh, for days at a time. The reason that it's being discussed is because in addition to being a private person, a father, a brother, a, 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 all that, he was also a president who made really weighty decisions. One of only 44 men in history to have served ex- as president of the United States. Exactly. And the other point is that this is not applied consistently by anybody. If you go, for example, and look at how CNN or how the New York Times or how any major media outlet in the West talked about the death of Hugo Chavez, Mm. they would say the good point, you know, he brought people out of poverty. He was popular among the Venezuelan poor. And they would also talk about the bad points. He restricted uh, a free press. He was viewed as having authoritarian tendencies. Yep. Exactly what should be done, right? Which is that you have an honest discussion of where the person fits in. So why should we exempt American leaders from honest discussions unless we're propagandist in state TV? So here's my question to you. As much as definitely it is propaganda in state TV and watching CNN on Saturday, especially as a Brit in DC, just watching that, it was, it was bizarre to see the kind of music. And uh, you had Jake Tapper, who is a journalist I respect at CNN, tweeting out cartoons of George and Barbara Bush meeting outside the the gates of heaven. It's bizarre. The whole heaven angle with journalists is weird. Uh, and I'm a believer. I'm not even an atheist like you. I actually believe in God and the afterlife. It's just weird to be having discussions about afterlife in kind of mainstream journalism. That's not really the purview of journalists. But for me, what was interesting was what is that driven by? Is that propaganda and state TV? I'm sure part of it is. But part of me, maybe as the immigrant here, says, is it a cultural thing about the US media that Americans and American journalists are just more pious, more deferential to people in power than maybe other, even other Western journalists? I don't think you would have this kind of coverage if Angela Merkel died tomorrow on German TV. Maybe I'm wrong. I think I think there is a lot going on, right? So, um, I mean, the the first time I really noticed this was when Ronald Reagan died, yeah. and the coverage was beyond suffocating. I mean, it made the coverage of McCain and George H. W. Bush look almost, you know, mean spirited. It was just <laughs> oh, it, ne- it was never ending. Um, they followed his casket around all over the country, and Ronald Reagan was a deeply divisive figure, but for at least a week on TV, not a syllable of criticism was permitted. Yeah. So yes, I think it is that the U.S. media is extremely patriotic. Um, one of the flaws of the U.S. media is because, you know, people like cable hosts on CNN and MSNBC are extremely rich. They live in the same neighborhoods as the powerful people that they cover. They start identifying them with them. They're part of the same cultural class. Um, they interview them. They get to know their top aides, their kids. Yeah. Um, it's just a natural human instinct, I think, if you don't try and create some psychological distance to start revering the people that that you're covering. And I think that's part of the flaw of U.S. journalism. But here's what I'd add to that. That same what you just said applies, I'm sure, to the British press corps too. But to be fair to the British corps, British press corps, which has many sins, uh, you don't see Downing Street political correspondents standing up when Theresa May or Tony Blair were to come in the room. That would be absurd. The White House press corps stands up when Trump comes into the Roosevelt Room. I've always found that bizarre. And maybe that's partly because of the deference, partly because the president is also your head of state. He's also kind of the Queen of England and the prime minister wrapped into one, which is kind of which adds to that whole sense of grandeur and uh, this idea that the president is the state. And, you know, this, as you say, patriotism, this idea that you must mourn for George Bush public because it's a patriotic thing to do. And it's not just the media, Glenn. It's not just kind of the centrists or liberals or whatever it is. There's this pressure on progressives and the left to also come out and join the oncomiums and the hagiography. Bernie Sanders has been praising Bush in recent days. Uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, when McCain died, she got criticized for saying... 
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. I think she said something like he was an unparalleled uh, example mm. of something or another, which was a weird word to use because unparalleled literally means no one else on earth uh, comes close to them. Right, right. Um, and I just think there's this pressure on the left also to toe this line. And a lot of American left-wing politicians do play the game and go along with it, maybe because they're just worried about being accused of being unpatriotic. Right. Well, I mean, they don't, I mean, politicians by their nature don't want to be the target of the attacks that you were the target of over the last 48 hours because of the things <laughs> that you wrote. Um, I, I also, though, do think that there's a particular Trump angle here that we shouldn't overlook, which is that part of yes. the opposition the media opposition, the Democrat opposition, Democratic opposition to Donald Trump is to kind of whitewash and revise the pre-Trump history in the U.S. Very good point. To say that kind of all U.S. political presidents used to be, even if you didn't agree with them ideologically, noble, they abided by the rule of law, they were good patriots. Obviously, I think a big part of why McCain was so beloved upon death was because he was a virulent opponent of of Donald Trump to the point of asking him not to come to his funeral. So this reverence yeah. being heaped on these figures, I think, That's has a, a big Trump angle to it as well. So let's talk about the Bush legacy and how different he was from Trump or not. Let's talk about George H.W. Bush. Before we talk about the bad stuff, the overlooked stuff, uh, I just want to make it clear, and I don't know if you disagree with me, he wasn't the worst of presidents. He did some good things. Uh, what do you think he did that he should genuinely be remembered fondly for, or which was a net positive at the time? Well, it's interesting because he was a foreign policy expert, you know, a genuine foreign policy expert and brought in to his cabinet, um, unlike the Reagan administration that preceded him, which were these hardcore anti-communism ideologues, a kind of realism that in in a lot of ways was really welcome. And one of the things that I'm not sure if it ever made CNN's air, probably didn't, that marked the Bush administration was they were probably the most pro-Palestinian or at least willing to criticize Israel administration of the last three or four decades to the point where they threatened to withhold funds from the Israelis if they didn't stop being so cantankerous on the peace process because James Baker, George Bush's secretary of state and close friend, knew that the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and the perception that the U.S. was on the side of Israel was endangering U.S. interests around the world, something that, you know, David Petraeus and others more recently have said. Um, So I think he was experienced, competent. There were moments of decency where he kind of repudiated the uglier parts of political life. And one of the weirdest things is, um, you know, the Reagan administration was filled with all these tough talking guys who like evaded war. And yet George H.W. Bush was an actual war hero. He was almost killed when his plane was shot down. And yet they always called him a wimp, even though he displayed Mm -hmm. actual courage, whatever you think of. And the other realists around him were people like Brent Scowcroft, General, Colin Powell, General. 
which was interesting as well. Is, I mean, the Israel thing is is fascinating. I, re- I remember uh, reading that he was the guy who, in the middle of one of these power struggles over loan guarantees for Israel, he called himself, quote, one lonely guy battling against a thousand lobbyists on the hill, which drove APAC up the wall. Can you imagine a modern president or senator or congressman saying, I'm one lonely guy against a thousand pro-Israel lobbyists? I can't imagine uh, anyone having the guts to say that in the current climate in particular, even now. Um, he also stood up to the gun lobby, which I think was uh, yep, is worth yep, mentioning, yep. the NRA. Um, and, uh, you know, the Cold War ended on his watch without a shot, which, you know, other presidents might have uh, gone to war at that time. So, look, I give him credit for that. As you said earlier, you know, give a, you know, say the good things and say the bad things. The problem is right now is that in since Friday night on mainstream television, in the New York Times and the Washington Post, there has been no discussion of the bad stuff. So let me ask you, what's the worst thing you think he did? So I think the worst thing he did, and this is the big irony of the Trump angle, um, is the Iran-Contra scandal was, although most people of, say, the millennial generation and younger never learned about it, don't really know much about it, was a genuinely deep and profound criminal scandal pervading the highest levels of the government in the 1980s. you know, Which the, actually cost lives, unlike Russiagate, as far as we know. People right. actually died yeah. as part of Iran Contra. Uh, absolutely. I mean, they, you know, they not only did they Vicious s- sell arms, they handed the Iranian government, which at the time was a declared enemy of the U.S., really sophisticated weapons. Um, but then the worst thing they did was they used the proceeds of that money to fund death squads yeah. <laughs> in Central America. Um, and then they lied about it systematically to the Congress. It was also a violation of congressional law. Congress had explicitly prohibited any money from going to the Contras yeah. because of their human rights violations. That's why they had to. That was a Reagan story, Glenn. Had nothing to do with Bush. It was all Reagan. And uh, and the thing about it was because (laughs) Bush was the you know a former CIA director and really was a truly knowledgeable foreign affairs expert, he was at the center of a lot of that. And when he became president. Because of how long special counsel investigations take, the special counsel investigation was going on. He stymied it every step of the way. And then when he lost to Bill Clinton in the 1992 election, he used his lame duck status to pardon Casper Weinberger along with six other aides. Who was Reagan's defense secretary. Who was Reagan's defense secretary. And the special counsel at the time viewed Casper Weinberger as being the key witness whose notes and other documents would implicate George Bush himself at the center of these crimes. So the pardons that he gave out weren't just, oh, we're protecting our political aides and allies and minions, which is bad enough. What George Herbert Walker Bush did with those pardons is exactly what everyone now says correctly will be an, a grave threat to the rule of law and democracy oh, yeah. people, if Trump People doesn't. are losing their minds now over, over him just suggesting he might pardon Paul Manafort. Bush actually went and pardoned the six main guys, Elliot Abrams, Casper Weinberger and others. Let me just read out to our listeners what Lawrence Walsh, the special counsel at that time, said in his final report in August 1993. He said the criminal investigation of Bush was regrettably incomplete. He said the Weinberger pardon marked the first time a president ever pardoned someone in whose trial he might have been called as a witness because the president was knowledgeable of factual events underlying the case. He accused Bush 
of participating in the Iran Contra cover-up. So yes, I just I tweeted this uh, earlier this week, which is you cannot get mad and angry at Trump for obstructing justice, for promising a pardon to Manafort, for refusing to do an interview with Mueller, and then give George H. W. Bush a pass when he did all of that and worse with his special counsel. Exactly, and Trump might at the end of the day equal that. Um, maybe he might even exceed it, but as of now, he hasn't. And yeah. so to act as though Trump is this unparalleled and unprecedented threat to the rule of law, while we heap praise on George Herbert Walker Bush, even though he did exactly what everyone says if Trump does, democracy will die from having done, um, is, I think, really disturbing. So that was a special counsel angle, which was a deeply uh, a deeply undercovered angle even at the time and now, definitely now. Very few people are aware of it. I've had people reaching out to me since I wrote this column, journalists, analysts, saying, I never knew any of that stuff. Uh, and to be honest, I didn't know that much about it until I started delving into uh, the Bush presidency. But there's other things. I mean, I don't want to go through everything I went through in my article. If you do, plug, self-plug to the listeners. If you do want to read my piece uh, that I wrote, it's on the Intercept website where I talk about Iraq. I talk about uh, Willie Horton ads. I talk about the special counsel, which Glenn raise. But let me talk about a couple other things that haven't really made it into the news and I didn't have space for in the piece. Um, George Bush Sr., since we're on the subject of Trump, in 1988, the US Navy during the Iran-Iraq war shot down Iran Air Flight 655, killing 290 people on board, including 66 kids. And not only was the the crew never disciplined, not only was the captain later given a medal uh, by George Bush Sr., this is what Bush said when he was asked to apologize for the killing of those Iranian civilians. I'll never apologize for the United States of America, ever. I don't care what the facts are. Glenn, if Donald Trump had said something like that, what do you think the reaction in the D.C. pundit community would be? I mean, it really is one of the most horrific and sociopathic statements made by a president probably in the 20th century. And I mean, obviously the bar for that is really high, so I don't want to put it in the necessarily the top <laughs> class. But I mean, it's really, to this day, it, it's shocking to hear, given that whatever the intentions were, and there's a lot of debate over how reckless that was, whether it was even intentional, whether they mistook it for a military aircraft, you know, dozens and dozens of children and hundreds of civilians. It's basic compassion. We're talking about compassion right now. Where was I, his compassion? In? Not, I mean, right. Even if it was a complete, even, you know, if you get in your car and you, you know, injure somebody through no fault of your own, um, other than negligence, even though you don't intend to hurt them, you apologize. That's that's a decent thing to do, right? I will never apologize for the United States when there's hundreds of innocent, no matter what the facts are. That's my favorite extra Kellyanne Conway line. Yeah, (laughs) um, exactly. And, you know, I think that. That was very, and this is, I think, what, you know, Mehdi has been most disturbing to me is that he very much came out of this era in which all kinds of grave evils were committed by the United States during the Cold War against their enemies based on the belief that America was so inherently good that anything that it did was justified. And that mentality was expressed in that quote that you read under the most horrific of circumstances. So, you know, people will say, look, if you're the head of an imperial nation, you're necessarily going to engage in terrible acts. You're going to end up killing innocent people. You're going to be using violent force under very dubious conditions. Fine. That's exactly the reason why U.S. leaders ought to be treated like morally complex figures when they die and not embodiments of goodness, benevolence, and nobility as the U.S. media has demanded be done over the last year, over the last week. In defiance of the evidence. So one thing that jumps out to me 
What's really weird is, is this is not, none of this stuff, some of this stuff is ancient history in a, in a way. Look, the, I get it. The Iran-Contra stuff, if you weren't alive at the time, if you haven't studied US history, fine, it might fly past you even as a journalist. But some of the stuff is so fresh. For example, the Willie Horton ad. It's not as if that ad has come out of nowhere. We were just talking about it a few weeks ago when Trump ran his caravan ad, when the, when the Republicans ran that caravan ad. Everyone, including on CNN, was saying this is the most racist ad since Willie Horton. So it's not as if, you know, the George Bush stuff is is all ancient history. A lot of it is re- very relevant to now. I'll give you another example that, that jumped out to me, Glenn, after I'd written my piece on Saturday. I spotted uh, someone pointing out. So if you go to George Bush Sr.'s Twitter account uh, on Twitter, if you go to at uh, George H.W. Bush, the last tweet posted on there by the late 41st president is October the 5th. It's a tweet to Senator Susan Collins of Maine. And it says, at Senator Collins, political courage and class. I salute my wonderful friend and her principal leadership. And you know what he's referring to there. It was the Brett, it praising, was the Brett Kavanaugh vote. Exactly. Yeah, he's praising Susan Collins for vote. And Susan Collins is a friend of the Bush family. And the Bushes were friends with Kavanaugh. We know that. We know George Bush Jr. was manning the phones trying to get votes for Justice Kavanaugh. George Bush Sr. saying to Susan Collins, great job on getting Kavanaugh on Supreme Court. Now, last time I checked, I thought Justice Kavanaugh was the most divisive issue in American politics today. You know, he's getting a pass on that. You no know, mention of that in any of his obituaries. I mean, Mehdi, when I, you know, I started writing about politics in 2005. Um, motivated in large part by what was my personal disgust and the growing national disgust over what the administration of George Bush 43 and Dick Cheney were doing in the name of the war on terror to civil liberties, to innocent lives around the world, to American democracy and to the rule of law. And in every moment of all of that, when people were calling Bush and Cheney fascists, when they were saying that they were murderers, when they were saying that Halliburton was um, co-opting U.S. foreign policy for profit, kleptocracy, all of the things that are being said about Trump, George Bush was defending his son. Now, you can say, well, look, I mean, you shouldn't hold that against George Bush Sr., but I don't think that that's the point. The point is, is that the Republican Party prior to Trump shared the vast majority of sins that are now yeah. currently attributed to Donald well, Trump. Well, you can find some new ones, but he comes out of that lineage of well, which I've, I've, two, I've, I've, two, I've two words. Clarence Thomas. <laughs> Why has his name not been in the news recently? George Bush Sr. put Clarence Thomas, one of the worst Supreme Court justices in history, a man credibly accused of sexual harassment, onto the Supreme Court knowingly, deliberately. He doubled down when the accusations against Thomas came out. And I just find it bizarre that the same Democrats who are telling us what a great moderate president he was are the same Democrats who rail against Clarence Thomas every week. It's just uh, the cognitive dissonance is amazing. It, it's really this. Th- this is why, Matty, I'm so glad you wrote your piece. It's why I'm going to continue to defend the right to have these discussions at exactly the time that they're most needed, which is when the propaganda and hagiography are being constructed. What really is being demanded is that we all submit to historical revisionism, that a false narrative about history and politics be permitted to be erected yeah, without challenge or dissent. And uh, the fact that journalists, of all people are leading the way and making that demand is deeply corrupt and offensive. And I just think that it's incumbent upon all of us to refuse to allow them to do that. Yeah. And there's a guy called Brendan Nyhan, I think he pronounced his name, from Dartmouth, academic on Twitter, very lively, writes some interesting stuff. He has this Twitter thread going since Trump came to power. Whenever Trump does one of his absurd, unconstitutional, outrageous, illegal things, he tweets, what would you say if you saw this happening in another country? Which I always find interesting. I always retweet because it's a good point. You really can understand the Trumpism when you look at other countries. And, and yet... 
I just think of I just think of that tweet for the last couple of days, and I'm thinking, what would you say if you saw this in another country? If you saw the, the president of a tin pot dictatorship, quote unquote, in Africa or Asia, die, and the and the state media saying, well, he might be in heaven. He was one of the great human beings. He was a nice guy. He never did anything nasty. Uh, we would be laughing. We would say, oh, that's a country with no free press. Oh, poor poor old souls, you know, being forced to say all that stuff. And yet, that's what the U.S. is doing now. I met and here's I, my, Yeah, go ahead. I, I mean, I would pity the people I watched on TV having to do that, right? You would feel like yeah. almost like these people sorry are doing it voluntarily. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But here is here is exactly. willingly. So let me ask. So let me ask you this before we wrap up. Henry Kissinger. Henry Kissinger is going to die soon. He's a very old man, and when he dies, what Ma- do you, you promise? First of all, do you promise that's going to happen? Well, I mean, I can't control these things, but I think human biology will kick in at some stage. Right. Okay. What will happen? When he goes from the scene, what's going to be? He dies on a Friday night like George Bush Sr. What is the CNN headline on Saturday morning? Oh, I absolutely think like foreign policy guru or... Um, really? You know, for- Even Kissinger? Do you think? Do you not think we'll get a little bit of I think, some of the no, shit he did? No, no. I think the... I, really? Actually, I, I actually Ooh, think... I the, hope you're I, wrong. I, no, I'm not wrong. I think that the... I mean, look at how Kissinger is treated now by, you know, mainstream media. Outlets. I think... That's the, true. Hillary I think, I think, his friend. I think the bigger test is going to be when Jimmy Carter dies um, because okay. he spent the last you know two decades of his life being very critical of Israel, being an outspoken critic of the United States and its hegemony. That's a good point. That, That's I think, point. is the more interesting question. I well, think I think it's a double whammy with Jim, Jimmy Carter because it's not just, okay, he's, he's, he's moved to the left and people don't like the left. I also think one thing we haven't, and we run out of time, and one thing we didn't cover was a lot of this hagiography is always very one-sided. It's Democrats being ordered by Republicans to line up. I don't believe for a second that you would have the same hagiography from the Republicans, uh, if Barack Obama or Hillary Clinton dropped dead tomorrow, Definitely they wouldn't not. be kind of or, as or deferential. Bill Clinton, or Bill Clinton. Or Absolutely, Bill Clinton. Not. No, Absolutely Fox not. News, Fox News would not be sitting there saying, what a great man Bill Clinton was. It's the left that always kind of kowtows to the right when they're on these things. Uh, so on that note, last question then linked to Kissinger. Donald Trump, I think, will be an interesting test case. If those burgers ever get to him and uh, and he drops dead, what will be... Uh, what will be the reaction? All these people who say we must respect the dead, he's the president. I, f- I suspect they won't follow their own rules on Trump. They Or or imagine if Putin died tomorrow. Absolutely they won't. Um, and, you know, nor should they. They should not suddenly pretend when Donald Trump dies tomorrow that a person who actually is without any positive redeeming traits was in fact a really kind and good and yeah, compassionate person true. just because he no longer <laughs> lives. Well, to be fair, I guess when you cover Trump, it's going to be tougher. With Bush Senior, as we've discussed, there were some redeeming traits as a, as a family man and as a president. With Donald Trump, not even as a family man. Glenn, we'll have to leave it there. Thank you so much for taking time out to join me. Thank you for finally having me on, Maddie. I really appreciate it. That was Glenn Greenwald, Pulitzer Prize winning journalist, co-founder of The Intercept, speaking to me from Brazil. I think Glenn's absolutely right. There's masses of hypocrisy going on here. And as journalists, as journalists, it's nothing other than a dereliction of duty to not hold the powerful to account, even in death. Hagiography is not journalism, and rewriting history is just not acceptable. That's our show. Deconstructed is a production of First Look Media and The Intercept and is distributed by Panoply. Our producer is Zach Young. Dina Sayed Ahmed is our production assistant. The show was mixed by Brian Pugh. Lital Molard is our executive producer. Our theme music was composed by Bart Warshaw. Betsy Reed is The Intercept's editor-in-chief. 
And I'm Mehdi Hassan. You can follow me on Twitter at Mehdi R. Hassan. If you haven't already, please do subscribe to the show so you can hear it every week. Go to theintercept.com forward slash deconstructed to subscribe from your podcast platform of choice, iPhone, Android, whatever. If you're subscribed already, please do leave us a rating or review. It helps people find the show. And if you want to give us feedback, email us at podcasts at theintercept.com. Thanks so much. We have one last show left for this season before Christmas. Do tune in. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.